Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway, and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, review us on Apple, or head to patreon.com, find Tortoise Shack, and support us in bringing all of this content to you. You see, what they use is a tactic that they let on, they're so familiar with you, because they start using your name. Bernie, will you do this? And Bernie, can you get them to do that? And that's to get people to turn on you. In this episode, we'll hear from Bernie Hughes, who was heavily involved in the Right to Water campaign. She talks to us about why she got involved and what that looked like. Most of us will remember the images of protesters attempting to stop the installation of water meters and the Garda involvement in that. And most will also remember the trial of a group of people, including a 17-year-old, for false imprisonment of the then Thonishta at Jobstown. Bernie tells us today what it was like for those on the streets exercising their democratic right to protest. Dr. Lawrence Cox, Associate Professor of Sociology in NUI Maynooth, will also give context and perspective on the policing of these protests. I started off because I have been involved in uh, community activism and that most of my life. But I saw the water charges as a step too far, like an awful lot of people did. I was sitting at home one day and I saw a, a post on uh, Facebook asking for people to come out and or somebody to come out and help this lady, Donna, Donna Thompson in Wimmel Road in Rohini. And I said to myself, well, I can sit here and do nothing or I can go out there and stop them from coming into my area by stopping them out there. So I didn't know anybody or anything like that. So I just got up and went over and the rest is history. Do you know what I mean? We we stopped the meter going in that day and there was very little uh, police involvement or anything else that day. But it really was only to be to stop that meter going through. The people that I had met there, which was Derek Bourne, um, who had been involved in Dublin Says No at that time, one of the organisers of it, of Dublin Says No, but he arrived and Donna would have been involved in Dublin Says No. We went anyway and we stopped the meters going in that day. There was a bit to and fro with the workers. But when the workers moved off eventually, a day later, I think it was, we decided to move with them. So we stopped them the next place they went as well, which they weren't very happy. So the guards start coming sort of on board then. The decision to introduce charges for water in Ireland came in the wake of the recession. To implement this, Irish Water was established in 2011 and the installation of water meters began in the autumn of 2013. Concerns over costs, bonuses and pay quickly emerged In April of 2014, residents and housing estates in both Cork and Dublin began to protest the installation of the metres. For many, this was the last straw of austerity, with the working class unable to subsume yet another tax. By October of 2014, Right to Water had been established and some 100,000 participated in protest. Anti-water charge protesters say they'll intensify their campaign over the coming months until the charges are dropped. Thousands of people marched in Limerick city centre again today to protest about the introduction of water charges. It was organised by the Anti-Austerity Alliance and the We Won't Pay campaign and members of the Socialist Party. A hearse describing the water tax as a death tax was also driven through Limerick as part of the march. As demonstrators said, they remain unconvinced by the recent government announcement of concessions on water charges. It's the final straw. Uh, We've been crucified for the last six years and this is the end. we're bled dry, we can't pay another penny and I feel with the amount of tax we're already paying, we've already paid for our water a hundred times over. Dr Lawrence Cox of NUI Maynooth explains what protest action looked like in this social movement. There were lots of dimensions of the water charges protests. There were huge 100,000 people marches in Dublin. 
There were the national days of action with maybe a hundred little protests. There were people not registering, not paying. Uh, but most of the policing side of it was around the direct action, uh, specifically with people refusing to let water meters be installed in front of their houses. Uh, there was also direct action with people removing them in the dead of night, but police didn't tend to be around for those sort of fairies actions that people called them. Preventing the installation of water meters occurred in public on roadsides, and so the Guardi were often called to the scene. In the early stages, they were sort of quite um, just we're here to keep the peace and whatever. But as things developed and we moved forward into the likes of Edenmore, where the people came out in numbers, each day more people started coming out and supporting us. But when we moved into, to the best of my knowledge anyway, Edenmore um, and around that area, people were out in force. They stood in the, the meters and there's plenty of uh, visual recordings of it to show. Well, the guards became more, uh, more pressure was put on people. Subtle, like, uh, you know, under the Water Act and Asher, the workers are only doing their work. Do you know what I mean? They're only doing their work. That's, you know, and because of the time that we were in as well, the bailout with the banks and everything else, I mean, people were... A lot of people were working there probably that under normal circumstances wouldn't have uh, probably worked there. But we had no gripe against any of the workers. And most of the workers were okay. It was a bit, sometimes there was a bit of um, great tempers and whatever. But on both sides, like they got frustrated with us. And because the guards and some of them would try to push us out of the way or that, that, tempers got frayed but there was never any very little like very very little uh force was used with workers or you know handbags at dawn type of thing there was never any uh outright uh violence if you want to put it that way certainly not on our part and there was one or two incidents that have been well documented that happened but when we moved to limewood and places like that to clare hall especially the guards became uh, much more physical. Like we would have maybe first thing in the mornings, we'd be out maybe a half six every morning waiting for the workers to come along. In each area, they had a, a, a group that came out to watch for them. And different areas would say they're at their pass and, uh, you know, women ro rode on their way to you or whatever. So we would always know where they were as they approached, if they were on the N32 or whatever. But the guards started coming as early as, nearly as us, right? Once they were called, they came, but sometimes they were there in force. There could be 50, 60 guards, not a bother. They were there. Some of them, I must say, were quite just nasty, just nasty people. And they'd be nasty in their everyday life. But there was others that were there, and a lot of people might like me saying this, but to me it's the truth. There was a lot there that that weren't, that would have rather been somewhere else. You know, and many of the guards said that to us over the time. But there was one particular time, I wasn't there that day, so it's only from what I've seen, the guards became very physical in Clare Hall. And the videos proved the force they used people out of the way and especially uh, women and there was women of every age there was older women there was younger women there was teenagers you know what I mean so there was right across the spectrum and an awful lot of women because uh, especially early in the mornings when they'd bring their kids to school they'd come back and they'd be on the picket line On one occasion Bernie recalls how the attitude of the guards was really problematic the first really bad experience I had with the guards was we we were up in um in a state around Eden Morahini. I can't remember the name of it now, but we kept the uh workers. We impounded their vans, if you want to put it that way, and their equipment. Uh, they had been very sort of uh nasty with people, the workers themselves that day. And uh, we had said, 
you know, what we intended to do if they didn't assist or whatever. So what happened was that the, the vans were impounded until about half one in the morning. Everybody stayed there. The guards were called in from other areas and whatever. But there was one, I had stood in the uh, local elections at that time and the verbal abuse I got fr- from one particular one particular guard who egged about three or four of them on. They surrounded me when I was talking to my son on the phone to say that I would not, wouldn't be home. You know, there's stuff in the uh, food in the fridge, work away. Um, and they're saying things like, oh, you won't even look after your children and uh, that's terrible, you know, and that's shocking. You know, I was I'm experienced enough and have been around long enough to hear that. But it's still put deep. It still does to think that there are people like that on the force. And they also, um, you know, I stood in the elections, as I said, and they said, sure, you're constituency didn't even vote for you and all this type of thing. Now, they had me surrounded in the half circle all behind me. Um, they made reference to my weight, like that I was fat and whatever. And I turned around and I just turned around to him and said, well, a lot of people would call me voluptuous, you know. So they didn't like that, you know, because I laughed it off. But inside I was, I was cut. Do you know what I mean? And especially when, you know, you try and put yourself out there, people mightn't agree with what you're trying to do, your policies, what what, what you think. Um, but there's respect among people, a lot of people. If you stand in the elections and put yourself out there, you're respected for that matter itself because it takes a lot for anybody to do that. But what really um, bothered me I leant up against the side of one of the vans and this same policeman said, oh, she's got a dingy in, that's damage, that's criminal damage, making reference to me weight again. Do you know what I mean? But one of the other girls, he was very, um, I got annoyed with him at this stage. I laughed off whatever he was saying to me, but, you know, there was smutty talk to a teenage girl that was there from whatever, and I can't remember explicitly what he was saying, but he was making reference to her, to her sexually. And that was an absolute, and I could go and say to him, if he stood in front of me, I see him quite often now. And I just, he gets dirty looks and he didn't tell you from me. But I would say it to him there and then. He would deny it, of course, but I know it's the truth. And the girl was very uncomfortable. So I took over and I just more or less uh, verbally got annoyed with him. Do you know what I mean? And he backed off then. How the Gardaí speak to those they encounter really matters. Commenting on people's appearance, objectifying them, should never be accepted. The guards are required to treat us all with respect and dignity. And what's described here does not meet that standard. We have a democratic right to protest peacefully and the Gardaí are required to protect that right. We should not be asked to accept the police of the state adopting such a tone towards us when we're exercising our rights rights they are supposed to be protecting. Dr Cox talked to me a lot about the consequences of the Gardaí adopting that tone. Looking at the water charges by comparison with Rossport, what's most striking is how much the Gardaí held back, how little they felt able to do. But of course, from the viewpoint of these mostly respectable citizens, householders and so on, their first experience of being on the other side of the law from the guards or their first experience for 20, 30 years was utterly shocking. And a lot of that is about the tone of the behaviour. It's about the attitude that's coming across. You're the enemy, you're little people, we're just going to mess you about because we can. Which, of course, is very much then what we hear from teenagers and working class people in their 20s as well. So. The shock element of that, people who thought, broadly speaking, the guards are on our side, broadly speaking, I want, you know, I want to be a good law-abiding citizen, and then finding out, no, actually, this is who they are. That was a big shock. Um, I don't want to dismiss the elements of actual police violence and so on, but to say on the Irish scale of things, they were pretty low. It was the attitude that was really bad. And I'm also struck by comparison, how earlier this year the policing authority commended the Gardaí 
for reaching into communities during COVID and how the tone and attitude adopted was key. In June, in a report to the minister, the authority stated, The good guard was also spoken of in terms of his or her tone and reference was made to certain guardie being known to be consistently respectful, even in difficult situations. It would be hard to overemphasise how strongly this came across in all the engagements in terms of its impact on the community's confidence in the Garda to deliver an effective policing service for them. It is presented as a desired and valuable policing outcome in itself. A positive tone can be critical in how someone experiences being policed. We've heard this repeatedly in this series, which makes the tone and attitude Bernie experienced all the more disappointing. By and large, we can choose our tone in responding to things, and so it's easily fixed and addressed. While it was often about that tone, Bernie also experienced violence at the hands of the police. When we were in Bluebell, I think it was um, Alan Kelly was out there opening... uh a housing, social housing. And we went over there to support people in Bluebell at this demonstration to show them that we weren't saying that the Labour Party had let the people down and whatever. This uh, response unit were there as well and things like that. So we, we protested for a while and we were on our way going back and the people were sitting on the road and whatever. Now, a particular guard came to me you see, what they use is a tactic that they let on. They're so familiar with you because they start using your name. Bernie, will you do this? And Bernie, can you get them to do that? And that's to get people to turn on you, the other protesters and whatever, which in the early stages I used to, I didn't know what was happening because I was never sort of accustomed to guards using the ones that I never knew, <laughs> use them and knowing my name, you know. So uh turned around anyway to this particular guard he was sergeant in Pear Street and he wanted me to talk to the protesters because they perceived some of us as organisers and leaders. There was no leaders, but sometimes people came to the fore because of experience in other things or whatever. It was organic. It just developed. I was standing in front of one of the response Luna fans and not stopping us. I was just standing there looking into uh, over towards where the new social housing was built. And all of a sudden, I was just, somebody came up behind me and just pushed me. Now, there was there was no other people blocking around. There was people standing around. But the force that he pushed me with, right, knocked me. I slipped off. My foot went onto the side of the curb because I was standing nearest, and I slipped. Right? And I went down, slipped on the curb, and went down onto the grass verge. But on the way down, we, I grabbed his leg and whichever way I pulled him, he went under me. So I didn't let him up. Everybody came, and rightly so, I think, came to support me because they saw, some people saw what happened. But there was no need for that. Like he broke my glasses, he, my shirt was ripped, my phone was smashed. Do you know what I mean? And no need for that. They went off very quickly after that. Because I think they thought there might be some, that it would be the ignition for, you know, some sort of violence. She subsequently encountered the guard who had physically assaulted her. I spoke to him outside another demonstration at the doll. I hadn't gone anywhere for a number of weeks because I was mentally shaken. I just couldn't, I couldn't accept how anybody like that could come up behind you and push you unawares. If he had came forward, had been in the front of me, that would have been fine because I would have defended myself if I had seen him coming. And that's not because I'm a a violent person, but because I would defend myself and I'd have that right to. But somebody rang me to say that he was in there at the demonstration. So I got one of my old election posters and put on it, Sergeant abuses women, right? And he was there. And I walked around with him the whole day and said, he kept saying, I didn't assault you. I said, you assaulted me, you know, and that was my way. I knew there was no use going to GSOC because GSOC never listened to anybody. There wasn't enough evidence. There wasn't this. It was always, always on the side of the guards, unless you had iron evidence. So, uh, 
that particular guard I met him at the RDS one time at an election. I was going out to support uh, John Collins. And he admitted to me a long time later that, yes, he did push me. Do you know what I mean? He admitted to my face and my daughter's. Bernie believes there were other tactics used to intimidate protesters. They pushed us into a lot of situations to try and force a situation, in my opinion. Especially the response units would be in pushing people uh, very, very much. But if you stood your ground, I found, they accept, you know, some of them accepted that they knew that they weren't going to get you. So I think they were, what they were trying to do was frighten people because they knew that a lot of people that were were around and involved weren't part of, you know, they wouldn't be have much experience, let's say, and I've gone through the bin charges, the tax marches and whatever back in the day. Do you know what I mean? So I was quite well aware of what the um, guards could do. A policing tactic called kettling was also used on occasion. This involves police forming a perimeter around protesters so others can't join and the group can be controlled. There have been occasions in the UK where kettles have lasted for hours and the question has arisen as to whether someone is in fact under arrest in those circumstances. We were in another area uh, in around uh, Mead and that, that um, an inspector wouldn't allow a, a woman out to the hospital. He wouldn't allow her out to go to the doctor or whatever. I think it was a child had a, an appointment and she had hired a taxi and all the taxi was in there but he had closed the, the street and he wouldn't let her out which was we thought was absolutely horrendous because we never stopped anybody if a street was closed off because of us we always moved aside for ambulances taxis people coming in we weren't there to stop the uh the residents or anything else from going about their daily work Lawrence commented on how the policing of the right to water movement compares to the policing of other protests in Ireland. In some ways, by comparison with what we've seen of the policing, for example, of Rossport, it was at times almost embarrassed. So we discovered in 2015 that there had been this high level Operation Mizzen, which sounds you know, very dramatic, like uh, something out of a thriller to you know, spy on water charge protesters and, you know, force through this really important policy, etc., etc. The sum total of Operation Miz, and it was revealed around the same time, was 188 arrests, of which um, more than a third were under an act that had had to be brought in specifically uh, to criminalise people who objected to water charges. And the others, very trivial things. So breach of the peace, refusal to obey the instructions of a guard. So really, really low level stuff. And then when you dug into it, you found that actually that figure of 188 arrests was about as reliable as the figures for traffic offences, but in the other direction. That in fact, there had been an awful lot more arrests for which people simply had never actually been brought to a station and charged. So you're talking to protesters and they say, yep, well, what happened was I was arrested, I was take, put into a car, they drove me to the other side of the city and dropped me out. Petty teenage school bully stuff, which was then also deeply ineffective because the protesters were much better connected than the cops had just phoned mates nearby uh, who picked them up and drove them back home and probably gave them a cup of tea on the way. So there was actually this kind of low-level unpleasantness going on on quite a large scale, but actually in terms of bringing people to court and getting um, significant sentences, virtually nil. So you see a force that's really quite embarrassed was my impression from the outside and going, well, we have to do something. Uh, we're going to do something. And taking, uh, as seems to be the default, the assumption that protesters are the enemy, which isn't necessary. We know, of course, from farmers' protests that you know, the guards are quite capable of not behaving like that. They're quite capable of saying, no, 
you know, our role is to facilitate peaceful protest, etc., etc. But here, on the one hand, very definitely going, no, we're against these people. These folks are our enemies. But doing so in such a you know, petty and ineffective way that they succeeded in making many people their enemies who had not started out like that. I asked him, if we think about this from a rights perspective, how did the Gardaí impede the right to protest? There's a lot of these petty arrests, um, these not really arrests, or these arrests on very, very trivial charges. Uh, Interspersed, obviously, with some very nasty behaviour at times. Um, This woman, for example, who's thrown against a bollard at one point. Um, That's an incident around the Taoiseach's car. There are a number of incidents around ministers' cars. (laughs) Turns out to have been a theme of this. There's a lot of kind of low-level ugliness um, cooperating with private security in ways they don't need to. Uh, This business of sort of overt surveillance, um, which, again, is unpleasant. It's intimidating. It doesn't actually achieve anything other than to say to people, you know, we're your enemies. To some extent, you've got to think about the background to this in the context, uh, particularly of the policing of Rossport and what came after that. Um, They uh, might have made themselves even more unpopular in the places that they lived themselves as individuals. They might have felt that they would lose fights, you know, if they had seriously gone, well, we're just going to send the riot squad in to force in meters in street after street after street. So clearly at some level they said, we can't actually do that. Uh, At which point you actually, if you think that through, as you should as somebody whose job is to uphold the peace more than anything else, you go, well, we can't actually enforce this. You you cannot say that just because something is written on paper, uh, it can be beaten into people's heads. It literally can't, not just it morally can't. They literally weren't in a position to do so. But they felt that they had to act as though that was the important thing. Bernie fully expected that she could end up in court over this. As far as going to um, court was concerned, right, I knew that when I went out there and I saw the guard involvement and everything else, I knew that it was going to go to another level. When there is that much involvement in guards and when there's strong people there, not just me, but like people like like Derek Byrne, like Audrey Clancy, and this was their their first um first time to man the barricades, let's say. And they weren't going to move. Do you know what I mean? So they were trying to frighten frighten other people. But anyway, it came to the stage where I had made that decision quite early that if it came to that stage, I wasn't going to back away because I believe that if you involve yourself in peaceful protest, there is an end. There is an end game. And during the bin charge campaign, Fingless had a very strong anti anti bin charge uh, campaign team, whatever. And there was 42 of us. Our names were taken one day and 42 of us ended up going to court. Five of us were imprisoned for an injunction. We went to Mountjoy for two weeks. So I was well aware of what the outcome of this could be. And it wasn't really to be frightened about. You know what I mean? But you have to you have to be prepared to see it through to the end for to make sure that we would get uh, the conclusion we wanted from the anti-Vetron campaign. We were arrested uh, you know, people were taken away a number of times and, you know, threatened that they were they're making an injunction and whatever. And when the first number of people, uh, the injunction was put, it was, a, I think it was um 20 metre exclusion or something like that around the shores, the area where they were working. So once uh, that was put in place, they said, you know, Jim Callahan and them, Jim was the barrister, uh, he's the Minister for Justice, or the Spokesman for Justice never been involved. But uh, he thought that that was the end of it. 
you know, but it wasn't because then they, those people stood back. The first group of people stood back for uh, Derek Bourne. Derek continued because he said he knew he had committed himself, let's say. So uh, we ended up, it was, we were told that if we broke the exclusion zone, they would uh, arrest us. We did it a couple of times. They did nothing. But one time we had the uh, Detroit Water Brigade came over to visit. Uh, Unite the Union brought them over and mandate and whatever to uh, discuss and to let people know what would happen if we allowed our water to go into private hands and how water how water poverty would uh, affect people. So when we went into Stony Batter one morning and we would be familiar with a lot of the workers at this stage anyway. Do you know what I mean? And uh, their their supervisors or managers and whatever. But this particular supervisor or manager, I'd say he 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 would have hated his strong word, but I'd say he hated us. You know what I mean? I really say he did. But anyway, uh, the guards came and our names were uh, taken. The Detroit Water Brigade, they were arresting them, but we were just showing them what we do on a normal day, standing, you know, hold, stop with them, stop them, whatever peaceful means we could. And that included going behind barricades and taking barricades away that they had put around the workstations. And rightly so, because from our point of view, that was that was our protest. Our protest was to stop the meters, not at any cost, but any peaceful cost. And a little bit of pulling and dragging was a price you had to pay, let's say. But um, as far as sort of the guards were concerned, anyway, we went to, ended up in, in prison. Of course, for many, the incident at Ancasson in Jolbstown became infamous. But Lawrence reminds us of the time when the Minister of State, James Riley, had his car surrounded in Bluebell. And he himself was actually brought out quite easily in another car, in a Garda car, I believe. And there's a crowd of mostly youths there. And there's this awful video, really, you know, from the point of view of what it represents, of these kids sitting on the ground. The minister has gone. The only thing that's left there is his car. But it is important to somebody to make the point that you don't disrespect a minister's car. So they send the riot squad in against these teenagers who are sitting on the ground. And you have to ask yourself, what were they thinking? Even from the most cynical and instrumental point of view, what was the point of that? Never mind, was it the right thing to do? It clearly wasn't. The minister's car does not deserve beating teenagers up. When it came to the Tonish's car in Jobstown? The policing of it on the day is not, in fact, the thing that is mostly contentious. There is some debate as to whether she was really surrounded or could have got out of there some other way. She and her um, assistant, I'm not quite sure what the job title was, were recorded saying some appalling things. And then eventually she left. Fair enough. The decision to prosecute and to bring absolutely ludicrous charges of false imprisonment, uh, which can carry up to a life sentence, it's a very, very serious charge, that didn't come from the guards, obviously. It's not the first time they've brought charges against elected reps, so they had brought charges against the, quote, Crumlin 13, unquote, which included Joan Collins, I think, um, another councillor and another 11 people, obviously. And those charges failed in court uh, or were dropped variously. This time there are dawn raids, including against a minor, utterly unconscionable stuff. If somebody is an elected representative, never mind a TD, you don't need a dawn raid to arrest them. You send an email or make a phone call and ask them to present themselves at a police station. And that's a a really serious constitutional point, I think, from the point of view of democracy, not saying, you know, I'm I'm not a lawyer, I'm not speaking from that point of view. But uh, if it becomes necessary to 
bring charges against an elected representative, the theatre involved uh, sends absolutely the wrong message. That's the kind of stuff that we associate with Hungary and Poland and India and Turkey these days. It's not the kind of stuff that we want to see in a democracy of any kind. So that was absolutely inappropriate. Uh, and then uh, the spectacle of the Guardi lying in court was, um, again, another complete own goal. Now, Paul Murphy went into detail and named names under privilege um, in the Doyle subsequently, and I think he was quite right to do so, because I think you actually have to say, no, look, this is totally not on. Uh, um, what happened was that guard after guard stood up in court and told a story which was flatly contradicted by video evidence, to such a point that the judge directed the jury to believe the video and not the guards. The one thing is that I've sat in the courtrooms and I've listened to the guards lie. They lied out of their, through their teeth, but they, they would always try and cover one another's backs. And that's been my experience. And I've met a number of guards that are okay, that are, you know, I've met guards to tell us that when we wear the uniform, we're different to the people that you will talk to outside, you know, with the uniform off. There are certain things they'll have to do, but there's a lot of guards that do it with relish. You know, if they have to, if they're given an instruction, they will take that instruction to the next level. There have been some interesting exchanges at policing authority meetings around the issue of lying of officers in court. In September 2018, Bob Collins, now chair of the authority, posed the following question. When Assistant Commissioner O'Brien was asked to uh, investigate the events uh, in Kiltalone in 2014, well, the events took place in 2014, uh, Assistant Commissioner O'Brien was asked to uh, investigate them last year. There were four terms of reference, one of which was the presentation of evidence uh, at the circuit court. And we have raised the question on several occasions uh, throughout this year as to what the status of that term of reference is. It was suggested that we might have been interfering with the, with the courts or that the Garda Síochána might be interfering with the independence of the courts if it were to look at the question of the presentation of evidence. But as far as we can establish, nothing has happened. And I wonder, is it the case that that term of reference is simply no longer being addressed? If so, is there a rationale for that approach? One would have thought that in, given the circumstances, that the initial intention that the presentation of evidence would be a subject, a subject of review would be an important learning point at the very least for the organisation. To which the Commissioner replied. If we are going to have, a, in effect, lessons learned, um, and we set it out in that context, and if we start there, but we start there from a basis of this is, and for the, part, the purpose of informing what criminal justice strategies in respect of, of public order events might look like in the future, that would be a good place to start. Whether we can actually do a lessons learned type approach to this is entirely reasonable and actually probably good for us in terms of where our policy is at the moment because the criminal justice element of any a public order operation is central to it because those who, who create disorder, you always want to bring them uh, before the courts for whatever offences that you're able to gain evidence for. So there's our efficiency lies in this and how effective we are in public order operations. So if we can take that away, an alternative approach here, then we can see then what, what we're able to achieve then. Unfortunately, in June 2019, when Mr Collins returned to this topic, he felt he had to say the following. I find it difficult to understand how something that was a term of reference in the review that the Garda Síochána set up arising from Moncosson has not been dealt with in any way. And when we talked about this several months ago now, this was going to be taken away and looked at because there is a considerable body of information. One of the original barriers was the unavailability of, uh, or the complexity in having access to transcripts of yeah. the trial. Transcripts are available on the web. Um, but that there was other information and notes and whatever available to Gardaí. And it's just interesting 
that in the case of this very significant trial, which collapsed, that nobody at a senior level has reviewed the gathering and the presentation of the evidence in this collapsed trial. So Gardy had indicated that when they conducted their internal review of what happened at Jobstown, they would review the giving of evidence in court, the lies that were told. And despite saying that they would review it, they never actually did. There was no internal reflection on the fact that a judge had directed a jury to disregard the evidence of Gardy. Literature on police culture would certainly say that solidarity can lead to a blue wall of silence, whereby police can side with each other, even over the truth. Lawrence sees something cultural in this too. The only thing you can conclude is that there is an organisational culture, a sort of barracks room culture in the guards, which makes this kind of thing acceptable, which makes lying in court acceptable, which makes the assumption that working class people are your enemies acceptable, which makes the assumption that protesters who aren't farmers or otherwise likeable in you know, whatever mindset it is, are your enemy rather than citizens exercising their democratic right, which has to be facilitated and balanced, etc. So that's a cultural problem. This all brings the function of the guards strongly into play. What are they there to do? Ensure the meters are being installed or protect the rights of all? But I think the guards were used. They were used and we kept saying to them, they're putting you in between us. Jews are not a, you know, a security force. You're not, like, I mean, a security firm to keep the workers. You're not working for GMC Sierra. You're not working for Dennis O'Brien. Like, if, if anything, you should be working for us. You should be supporting people. And the thing was, too, that they, they just, like, there was times that I remember Sergeant as well, and we were, had stopped people at Donamead. There was line, a big line of trucks. We didn't even let them into the estate finished work they had already started the day before but it was a very foggy day and the sergeant said will you please let us let them in just to cover the holes with you know the metal plates or whatever they were going to do but we got word back out on the where we were stopping them all coming in we let some of them go in that they were putting in the meters into the boxes that they already had so that was the undertaking they gave us um, well, they gave me the undertaking because I negotiated and I take people at face value. But it, it was a mistake because the sergeant had them putting in the, allowed them to put in the thing. So we went back in and stopped, cut it all down. And I mean, I wasn't very nice to what I had said to him. Um, and I try not to use language. Like, I, I don't, I'm not a person that uses a lot of bad language, but I can't. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's all I suppose. But um, I was irate. And you know what the other guards were doing when I was tearing strips off this guard? You know, why did you lie to us and say that you, I made an agreement with you on behalf of everybody else. But um, the other guards were, some of them were winking at me. Do you know what I mean? Like they were, they were winking at me, but no, not winking at me in any, the same fair play to you. That's what I took out of that. Lawrence is clear that the guards aimed to aid the installation of the meters. The guards were trying to force that through and failed, bluntly. There were large swathes of particularly working class Dublin and Cork where they just were not able to install water meters. So they were a failure on that side, but they made themselves sufficiently unpopular in the attempt to do so uh, that they also burned... Yeah, a huge amount of capital that they would have had, you know, just broad sense that, you know, you've got to have the police, the police are on your side, you know, your kids should, you know, bring them up to act proper and so on. And that was lost. And it was lost in large part by what they were there to do, of course, because the water charges themselves were not accepted as legitimate. And you've got to remember, this is only a few years after the crash. People absolutely had their backs to the wall. The scale of what they were being threatened with in water charges would have absolutely broken many households. These were very, very scary moments. 
Uh, and the dogs in the street knew that uh, this was also ultimately on behalf of Dennis O'Brien, who was making the money out of the water meters, uh, and for uh, a political party that was really very illegitimate in the minds of many of the people in these communities. So the guards appeared as very, very much on the wrong side. And from that point of view, anything they did made things worse without, in fact, achieving the task that they were supposedly there to do. So a real own goal. This is not at all uncommon. The policing of protest is often when the politicisation of the police is most sharply seen, both in terms of the values police officers hold, which are traditionally conservative, and the degree to which they can be influenced by political masters. One of the things that made this protest different to many others we've seen in Ireland is that it was entirely class-based. That's clearly part of it, is that the guards have always had this flavour of being an alien body in a lot of urban working-class Ireland, particularly. There's lots of places where people still talk about the Garda station as the barracks. And, yeah, that attitude of, you know, that, that unnecessary attitude of these people are our enemy by virtue of being working-class dubs, or what? Yeah. Uh, th- these are literally people who are doing nothing more threatening than standing around ashore, the manhole thing, or parking their car on top of it, or even just, you know, walking into a hole that men are digging and just standing there with their arms crossed. They, they're not aggressive people. They are not a threat. But somehow they have to be seen as an opponent in the most inept way. So there's this um, story, say, of the Battle of Rialto Street, which I think kind of encapsulates it. You probably heard it, but uh, uh, on a Friday, I think it was, this is out in Dublin 8, uh, the Irish water supervisor comes out and does a sort of head count and goes, oh, there's about 30 of them. And then on the Monday, comes back with 40 guards. So the protesters are outnumbered. It's like you can almost hear the gears creaking very slowly in somebody's brain. So right enough, they bring their big yellow machine in and they get a hole or two dug. But of course, the protesters have mobile phones. They are networked. They phone people. And it doesn't take very long before the street is full of people. And the big yellow machine and the guard cars and so on are slow marched out of the area. Yeah, And they're managing to that kind of being slow marched out of areas where they're not wanted is something that they managed to achieve time and time again in a way that we haven't seen in working class Ireland really um, since the um, big anti-drugs protests in the 80s and the 90s. That ability to unerringly just put yourself on the wrong side for no particular purpose except that that is clearly where your gut is. Because as I say, it wasn't actually instrumental. It didn't in fact work to do anything other than lose a lot of popular support and legitimacy. In 1983, an action group called Concerned Parents Against Drugs, CPAD, was formed, an organisation that felt that the Guardi were not policing drugs sufficiently in the inner city of Dublin and who intended to take action against drug pushers. Their policy was one of forced evictions, to get drug dealers out. Decisions would be taken at mass public meetings and then carried out by the local community. CPAD argued that the police strategy was to contain the drugs problem within certain communities rather than eradicate it. Many members of CPAD maintained they were stopped, searched and detained by hostile Gardaí. It was counter-alleged that these groups were dominated by Republicans, though many feel this was perhaps overstated. A serious breakdown in police community relations occurred to the extent that the then commissioner, Wren, stated in 1982, the Gardaí are not wanted in some areas of Dublin and a potential exists for the sort of breakdown between the police and the public which led to last year's urban riots in Britain. This is perhaps for me the key point here. We've seen hugely violent responses to protests in Ireland, 
Shell to Sea is a prime example, which we hope to come back to on the podcast. But by and large, the water protests were not that. It was about the tone and attitude adopted by the guards and the decision as to what their job was on the streets. That can have devastating consequences and harmful consequences. Damage can be done to community relations that can take years, if not decades, to undo. All because people wanted to exercise their constitutional rights. Bernie's strength of feeling about the guards as a result of her work and life is in no doubt. They're the ones that are supposed to have all this great training and whatever. I I don't believe that they have training in uh, proper communications with residents and people, whatever. And then protests did a huge damage to the to the police force or the guards because people don't trust them anymore. A lot more people saw them for. A lot of them I said are fine, but there's a, a large element in there that are just, I would say, nasty. And will cover their own backs and their colleagues' backs. You know, they have to follow the rules, so to speak. But I think personally that the guard should be uh, disbanded and the guard should be re uh, refigurated, if that's the word to use. And GSOC needs to be, I don't even, I don't believe it's impartial. On foot of the events at Jobstown and the collapse of the trial and the policing at North Frederick Street in 2018, the policing authority commissioned the Garda inspector to conduct a review of public order policing. The inspectorate made some key findings last year, that there's a lack of strategic threat and risk assessment in this area, that there's confused governance structures, no internal or external monitoring on the use of force, that trainers should be meeting annually to review public order training that there's a lack of a clear definition of public order and a failure to use a public order incident command model, that there needs to be more of a human rights focus in policy documents and that those documents should be published online, that recruitment methods to public order units are inconsistent, more gender diversity is required, and that planning and engagement with communities could be more structured and include community impact assessments. The policing of protests and demonstrations far too often becomes deeply conflicted. On occasion, it can all pass off perfectly peacefully and respectfully. I was on most of the marches for choice and never encountered any issues. But historically, there are plenty of more difficult examples in Ireland. May Day, Love Ulster, Student Fees, the Hate Block Riots, and back and back we can go. Even in the time of lockdown, the far right and workers have both raised questions about the policing of protests. Of course, in the context of Black Lives Matter, our protest issues can seem trivial. But how people are treated on protest speaks to the strength of our democracy, that we can respect the rights of those who may dissent with the government of the day. And how the police police protests speaks volumes to society about the role and function of the police. We very much appreciate Bernie Hughes giving of her time to share her experiences of being policed. Thank you to Dr. Lawrence Cox for providing us with his perspective. A big thanks, as always, to Tony Groves and Brian at Groves Ahead. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it wherever you listen, share with your friends and support us for the price of a cup of coffee a month at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. Thank you.